people who work in the prison system would have another, and I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Um, welcome to the Doing the Time Show. We've got a big one tonight. Today. Indeed we do. Um, and, of course, that's Peter, who has just introduced the show, and this is Marissa. It's approximately 4 o'clock, and this is 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. And this is the Doing Time Show, as Peter said. Yeah. So starting off, just to before we actually go into the intro, I just wanted to... Draw attention to listeners that it is the the, aniver- the death anniversary of the death of Miss Dew, and this is a young woman that died in um, in custody about two years ago, and we we're going to be doing some work and interviews and paying tribute to Miss Dew next Monday, and we'll be speaking with Joseph Pugliese about that and our thoughts actually today go out to the family on behalf of the Doing Time show. We want to offer refreshed condolences um, to the family. I indeed spoke to Caroline who is a relative of the family and her grief was just like it happened yesterday and on top of it they also had a death in the family and weren't able to be interviewed today. It's approximately 4.01 so starting off This afternoon, we're going to be speaking with Brett Collins from Justice Action. And we're going to be speaking with Brett about the rapid build dormitory prisons, which is actually going to be making things worse for prisoners, not better. A lot of overcrowding, a lot of, um, a lot of deprivation of programs. And we'll be speaking with Brett shortly about that. After that, we're going to be speaking with Ian from the Refugee Coalition in New South Wales. And we're going to be speaking with him about Hamid Kazi. Australia must do more to care for asylum seekers held offshore after an Iranian man died in entirely preventable circumstances, Queensland's state coroner said. Hamid would still be alive if he'd received proper medical care after developing a leg infection at the Australian-run detention centre on Manus Island, according to coroner Terry Ryan. But the 24-year-old died in a Brisbane hospital in September 2014, two weeks after seeking help at the centre's medical clinic, which didn't have the right kind of antibiotics to treat his infection. So we're going to be speaking later on with Ian about this, and he's going to be giving an update. We will not negotiate with minor state of title government or anyone on, on our culture, on, on our land. You know, if people say, oh, you're going to finish up with nothing, well, then so be it. But at least our hearts will tell us that we did not sell out our country and our culture and heritage for a few scungy dollars. Subscribe to 3CR so that your dollars support Indigenous voices and the struggle for land justice. For Aboriginal people, the greatest grief of all is seeing the country destroyed. And... Somewhere along the line, we have to realise that we don't actually have the right to do that, that nothing we've ever done has given us the right to do that. Now, you know where I stand on this, because I'm so simple-minded, 
I think we've just got to admit that this is an Aboriginal country. Just do it. And you're back with the Doing Time show. And it's one of those, one of those days I think we have not been able to get onto Brett Collins from Justice Action. He's missing in action, but I thought that while we were waiting for him to call or while we try to get onto him, rather than playing music at this stage, I thought it would be really, really good to, to be able to read out an article about Miss Dew and to honour her, even though we can't interview her. It is the death of the anniversary, isn't it, Peter? And interview her relatives. Rather than interviewing her relatives. So, um, and this particular article was compiled by a number of people, some of them being the relatives of, of Miss Dew and also Joseph Bouliese, who we're going to be interviewing next week, who Joseph is actually a great friend of Ray Jackson's and they did a lot of, a lot of work together and he's collaborated with many, many organisations, including Istra Sydney, um, with, Ab- about Aboriginal deaths in custody. And this is actually on a, on a website that actually maps out a lot of deaths in custody and it's called Deathscapes. And, um, the case study begins as follows. At a lethal intersection, the killing of Miss Dew, Australia. Miss Dew was a 22-year-old woman of the Yamati Yanda Nation and the Banjima, the Banjima. Miss Dew was taken into custody at the South Headland Police Lockup under a warrant of commitment for unpaid fines. She died within 44 hours of entering into the custody of Western Australian Police. Um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander viewers are respectfully advised that this case study may contain images of and references to deceased persons. All viewers are respectfully advised that this study contains images of references to the deaths in custody of Indigenous peoples, black people and refugees that may cause distress. At the same time, each screen of these case studies testifies to target community strength and courage as they respond to repeated deaths in custody through mirrored creative forms, through lines of solidarity and through an unwavering call for justice. My granddaughter has been dead for two years and I've still got no answers. I should be walking, waking up every morning and kissing her cheeks, not ironing a T-shirt with her photo on it because she's dead. Auntie Carol Rowe, Miss Dew's Nana, 2016. A young Yamati woman. Miss Dew was of the Amati Wanda Nation family group on her mother's side and the Banjima family group on her father's side. She was born in Port Hedland, though she spent much of her childhood in Geraldton with her, her nana, Carol Rowe. Her family describe her as happy-go-lucky and always with a smile on her face. They remember her as caring, full of love and cheer, with a fierce sense of loyalty to friends and family. Miss Dew was only 22 years old when she was taken into police custody. When police responded to a report that Miss Dew was being abused by her partner, they unearthed a number of her outstanding fines. This twisted events casting her as an offender against the law rather than a young woman in need of protection from family violence led to her own arrest and shocking death less than two days later. Miss Dew's status as a young Aboriginal woman meant that she was at the centre of a lethal intersection of gender, racial and economic violence. Her experiences of interpersonal masculinist violence at the hands of an abusive partner, 
her inability to pay minor fines that led to her incarceration and the racist violence she was subjected to by police and medical institutions both preceding and following her arrest, all contributed to her untimely death. During her final 48 hours of life, Miss Dew tried to convince police and medical officers that she was seriously ill, but she was discredited, disbelieved and subjected to further physical injury. They repeatedly refused to provide her with due care, respect and the necessities for life. The violent occupation by the coronial prison nation on Yamati country. Stretching fences across stone and sand and far into sea, their magnificent jurisdiction of brutality, they are their own totems. They worship their order. For Miss Dew, and that was a poem by John Kinsella. A continuum of violence against Aboriginal women. Of the 99 deaths that were investigated into the Royal Commission, by the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, 11 were of Aboriginal women, the majority of whom died in police custody. Three of the 11 women, Faith Barnes, Nita Blanket and Christine Leslie Ann Jones, died in Western Australia. Nita Blanket was at Bandiup Women's Prison when she suffered a serious asthma attack. Like Miss Dew, she was disbelieved and denied life-saving care. Twenty years before Miss Dew's death, Janet Beetson died at Mulawa Women's Prison. She was seriously ill, but was dismissed as withdrawing from drugs. Indigenous women now represent about 34% of the female prison population, despite making up only 2% of the total female population. In WA, the ratio is closer to half. The deaths of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women in custody have been afforded little visibility. One of the points that hasn't been really highlighted is that Aboriginal women have also died in custody. Most of the publicity is centred around young Aboriginal men who have been in custody within a short few hours and have met their death. But there are Aboriginal women who have died in custody, especially in Western Australia. Auntie Helen Uli Corbett, former chairperson of the Committee to Defend Black Rights. The official records rarely desecrate data to consider Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women as a distinct, uniquely positioned group. Inquest reports, media articles and other sources must be cross-examined to determine the number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women who have died in prison or in police custody or police-related pursuits. Since 1990, we have counted 37 deaths of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women in prison or police custody or police-related pursuits across Australia. More than half of these deaths have been in WA and New South Wales. Pervasive criminalisation. Miss Dew was the subject of four warrants of commitment for fines and costs, totalling $3,622.34. These were accrued between 2009 and 2011 and started with a $200 fine. Based on the largest fine, which could be cut out at $250 per day, Miss Dew was to serve four days in custody. Like many other women who are incarcerated for the non-payment of fines, Miss Dew had no other realistic means of paying them. Since 2010, one in six Aboriginal people going to prison in WA has done so for fine default, not including people held in police custody like Miss Dew. In 2013, one in three women who entered the prison system did so to clear fines. Miss Dew's death has prompted policy reviews and renewed debate about law and order politics and the incarceration of people for fine default. 
Despite recommendations, reports have continued to emerge from WA of other women being similarly targeted, including a mother of five whose outstanding fines were paid by a pensioner who felt compelled to intervene, and one of Miss Dew's cousins who was threatened with warrants of commitment for unpaid fines. Unpaid fines. To lose her life over that is a testament to how deeply ingrained the racism is in the system. Sean Harris, Miss Dew's uncle. Police discretionary powers as techniques of racial violence. High rates of incarceration and good order offences reflects how the bodies of Aboriginal women and girls are violently regulated and policed in public space. The police treatment of Miss Dew exemplifies the manner in which police discretionary powers police discretionary powers can be mobilised as techniques of racial violence. They evidence the asymmetries of racialised power that inscribe police discretion as to whether or not they will charge someone for disorderly behaviour, as is often the case with Aboriginal people, or whether they choose, as is invariably the case with white people, to let them off with a caution. Police discretionary powers as techniques of racial violence contribute to the over-representation of Indigenous people in Australia's prisons as they criminalise Indigenous people in ways that often have, have cascading effects. For example, an Indigenous person who resists arrest may be charged in turn with offensive language and police assault, a combination known as the trifecta. Miss Dew's fines for disorderly behaviour included swearing at a police officer. However, while in custody, Miss Dew was sworn at and degraded with no criminal or other consequences. Former Sergeant Bond was asked whether he swore at Miss Dew. He conceded he may have because that's the way we spoke to each other in the Pilbara. The police could not see Miss Dew as a victim who was deserving of protection and assistance. Her Aboriginality denied her this status. Dr Hannah McGlade. Gendered violence. Around 5pm on the 2nd of August 2014, Miss Dew was taken into custody under warrants of commitment for unpaid fines with her partner, Dion Ruffin, who was arrested for breaches of a violent restraining order, VRO, against a former partner. Mr Rufin was 17 years her senior. He was known to police as a serial, serial domestic violence perpetrator. Miss Dew's family had long held concerns about her safety and well-being with Rufin and made repeated attempts to get her away from him. When they arrived at the lock-up, Miss Dew had some difficulty walking when she got out of the police vehicle. When questioned by First Class Constable Eastman, she indicated that she had a broken rib. At this point in time, she was standing next to Mr Rufin. The ultimately fatal septus that Miss Dew suffered stemmed from injuries inflicted and re-inflicted by Mr Rufin. No efforts were made to ensure that Miss Dew was spoken to and assessed safely and in private. Miss Dew was taken to cell three and Mr Rufin was placed in an adjacent cell. Authorities entrusted with protecting Miss Dew ignored evidence that she was a victim of severe domestic violence. She said that her man was flogging her and he'd done, that, he'd done the broken ribs the late Mr. Dew, Miss Dew's father. Miss Dew required safety, treatment, care and a timely, serious and effective investigation of the criminal family violence inflicted on her. Instead, the state criminalised her over unpaid fines and effectively legitimised and replicated the violent coercive control that she had been subjected to by her partner. The failure of police to respond to Miss Dew's disclosures and take seriously cases of family violence against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women 
underpins how purveyors of state violence cannot be re- relied upon to prevent domestic violence. As anti-violence organisations like Insight have advocated, alternative responses, responses to gendered violence that do not promote the violence of the prison industrial complex are required. The submissions of the First Nations Deaths in Custody Watch Committee to the State Coroner highlight the supposed responsibilities of police to investigate domestic violence and the ways in which officers failed to fulfil their obligations to misdue. Refusal, refusal to, pr- to protect. In 2002, the Gordon Inquiry into the response by government agencies to complaints of family violence and abuse in Aboriginal communities made a series of recommendations that are largely yet to be implemented. In 2015, a report entitled A Measure of Trust considered how WA Police evaluate the effectiveness of its responses to family and domestic violence. Issues raised by victims, survivors, included a fear of being disbelieved, blamed or judged, a lack of confidence in the justice system, fear of retaliation and mistrust of the police. Many support services indicated that WA Police consistently failed to take breaches of violent restraining orders. Seriously, this was borne out in the case of Andrea Pickett, a Noongar woman from Perth who had taken out multiple VROs against her arranged husband. The, for, the coroner's episode, A Matter of Life and Death, documents how the failure of authorities to respond effectively to the domestic violence experienced by Andrea Pickett and by the Japanese-Australian woman, Saudi Jones, contributed to and enabled their murders. It also documents the relentless struggle of Andrea's family to achieve justice and change from her murder. The case of Andrea Pickett. Andrea was murdered by Kenneth Pickett on 12th January 2009 while hiding at her cousin's house. At the time, he was on parole in respect of a charge that on 14th February 2008, he had made a threat to kill her. Prior to her murder, she suffered several violent attacks and multiple breaches of the VRO. She had sought the support of crisis care in the hope of finding a safe place for herself and her children, but was told that they were unable to accommodate her. She relayed her concerns to police, but they were largely sceptical and dismissive. No steps were taken to ensure her safety. We walked out of there and she was like, nah, he's going to kill me. They, the police, are not going to help me. Diane Andrea Pickett's cousin. Resisting accountability. The case of Lynette Daly. Lynette Daly, also known as Norma, was a 33-year-old mother of seven. She was described by her family as beautiful, loving and kind-hearted. She had survived previous relationships where men had inflicted multiple forms of violence and control against her. On Invasion Day in 2011, she was subject to a prolonged and violent sexual assault at a time where she was highly intoxicated and could not have provided consent. She died the following morning and was found naked and bloodied on the 10-mile beach near Aluka in New South Wales. A report by four coroners entitled Callous Disregard detailed the harrowing circumstances surrounding her death. When questioned by police, Adrian Atwater, one of the men charged for her death, stated... These, these things just happen, man. As I said, girls can be girls, boys will be boys. The New South Wales Director of Public Prosecutions declined to prosecute in 2012 and declined to revive charges in 2014 following the coronial inquest. Community outrage led to an independent review of the case in 2016. A two-week trial was held in August 2017, following which the judge delivered a guilty verdict. On 8th December 2017, Adrian Atwater was sentenced to 19 years with a non-parole period of 14 years and three months 
while Paul Maris was sentenced to nine years with a non-parole period of six years and nine months. She was just a statistics with the DSP and with them. You know it was just another Indigenous girl. We'll sweep it under the carpet. I was wondering if it would have been two Aboriginal boys had done that to a white girl. I reckon they would still be in jail. Gordon Davis, Lynette Daly's stepfather. We know where they are now. We know they won't do it to anyone else. Gordon Davis, Lynette Daly's stepfather, December 2017. And we're nearing the end of the article. Dr Hannah McLeod, a Noongar human rights lawyer and senior Indigenous research fellow at Curtin University, has long been writing on the violence experienced by Aboriginal women and children and the pervasive culture of silence, inaction and marginalisation of victims, survivors. She has been involved in advocating around Miss Dew's case. In 2016, she addressed the UN at a panel discussion on the rights of Indigenous peoples at the 23rd regular session Human Rights Council. In this address, she referred to the violent deaths of three young Aboriginal women, Miss Dew, Andrea Pickett and Lynette, Norma Daly. Aboriginal women were absolutely suffering extreme violence and having no one to go to. The state is part of this problem. Now you can see many very serious offences against a woman with no accountability in the justice system. Dr Hannah McGlade. Exit to courtyard, a non-diagnosis. On the day that Miss Dew was taken into custody, she described her rib pain level as being 10 out of 10. While she waited to be taken to the Headland Health Campus, she could be heard constantly moaning and crying. Upon arrival, Nurse Lindsay recorded her pain score as 3 out of 10 and allocated a triage score of 4 to low acuity. Can you help me? It's hurting like hell. Miss Dew, 2 August 2014. When Miss Dew was examined, she was groaning in pain and recoiled when Nurse Dunn touched her. The nurse responded with words to the effect, I didn't touch you, I hardly touched you, and allegedly rolled her eyes. Miss Dew was immediately treated with suspicion and had her credibility questioned. During the inquest, both Nurse Lindsay and Dr Lang suggested that an escorting police officer had told that Miss Dew only appeared to be in distress or pain after she was informed that she would have to spend time in the lockup overnight. Dr Lang thought she thought Miss Dew's limp was a little bit artificial, like she was playing up her symptoms. She recorded an impression of behavioural gain and a discharge diagnosis of behaviour issues. The persistent assumptions that Miss Dew was faking her symptoms and was malingering, addicted, manipulative and hysterical. These entrenched racial, racist stereotypes underpin and license the physical ill treatment of Miss Dew. Indeed, it is only this framework of racist preconceptions that makes intelligible the inability of medical and custodial staff to recognise that she was seriously ill and to treat her with due care and respect. Savundri Pera, Statements for Miss Dew. Now, it's approximately 4.26. We've got about four minutes before we interview Ian, but I just wanted to alert listeners. I won't be able to finish this article, but um, if you want to have a look at this very, very relevant website, I'll just give you the website. It's www.deathscapes.org, case studies, Miss Dew. And there's, there's a lot of other stuff there. And the corresponding author... Um, I'm just having a look. Um, it's peracurtain.ed.au. And special thanks go to Auntie Carol Rowe, Carolyn Lewis and the First Nations Deaths in Custody Watch Committee, Dr Hannah McLeod and the late Mark Newhouse, who used to be the chairperson of the Deaths in Custody Committee in WA and died of cancer recently. So I just wanted to read that article. We, look, we were meant to interview Brett. He's missing in action. 
It's approximately 4.27. I'm going to try and get on to him maybe for next week. And, Peter, I'm wondering perhaps maybe we need to give listeners a bit of a break after that very harrowing um, anniversary tribute. Yeah, sure. I'll just put on We We Shall Cry by the Rumpy Band. And you're back with the Doing Time show, and we're going to be speaking with Ian, um, who's from a very, very um, industrious refugee organisation. Hello, Ian. Yeah, hi. How are we doing? Great. Uh, great to have you on the show, Ian. And we've interviewed Ian a few times on this show. Now, Ian, I'm just wondering, just start off quickly, um, just saying where you're from and who you are. Yeah, yeah, I'm from the, the Refugee Action Coalition in Sydney. Um, yeah, we're involved in organising a lot of the, you know, the protests, you know, fighting to change the refugee policy in Australia, obviously, and put an end to offshore detention and mandatory detention. So, yeah, pretty active. Absolutely, and, and I think we do need to be active in these very, very uh, dreadful times. Um, yeah, so Ian, could you just start off telling us, uh, and I gave a brief intro at the beginning about Hamid and talk uh, about okay. what happened, um, and I believe that Australia certainly needs to do more to care for asylum seekers held offshore. Yes, I mean, this, uh, the Hamid story is really a very shocking story of, you know, of, of medical you know, neglect and quite, you know, sort of, de- you know, deliberate uh, policy that uh, ultimately, you know, saw him saw him die. Um, and there were some shocking mistakes, you know, kind of along the way. But again, all mostly attributable to a policy uh, that meant that uh, the delays were built. He couldn't get a visa when he needed to uh, get a visa to get, you know, urgent medical attention. So it really started with a, a minor a minor scratch you know, on his leg. Um, it be it be he, he developed septic blood blood poisoning he was taken to um, uh, very sick he went to the um, medical clinic on you know on Manus Island itself at the time when it was on the, the naval base um, the the truth is that they didn't have the antibiotics uh, to, to to treat him uh, by the time they you know they re- recognized that he was deteriorating that the infection was getting worse the doctors on Manus actually requested that he be medically evacuated to uh, Australia um, Australia denied that border force in Australia, you know, denied that. Uh, it was another 24 hours uh, before the, finally the permission was given him to be to be evacuated to uh, Port Moresby. By that time, he was you know, well desperately, desperately sick. Uh, Port Moresby simply didn't have the didn't have the facilities to be able to to treat him. Uh, he went into uh, cardiac cardiac arrest when he was in in Port Moresby and was effectively brain dead when he was finally transferred from Port Moresby uh, to Australia. And uh, about 12 days later, they turned off the you know the uh, life support machine. So he actually you know died in the hospital in, in Brisbane, which is the only reason there was a coronial inquiry um, compared to the other people who died offshore uh, who, who had not been subjected to uh, a coronial inquiry or, or an inquest. So this was we had got some findings, we got some information, there were lawyers able to represent the family. Uh, so a lot more of, you know, the, the failures of the system and the, and the scale of the medical neglect which uh, led to the death of this young man uh, was able to be revealed in the coronial report. So when was the inquest? Uh, with that findings were handed down only uh, today, a week ago in Brisbane. 
That's very interesting. So he died. So Hamid Kazi died in 2014, and it took two years to hand down these findings. Yeah, yes. I mean, the, the thing is hideously slow. Uh, so it take, took a long time for the, the inquest to happen. We think it was two, 200 years before the inquest actually happened. After the inquest finalised, it's, it, it's a year since, um, you know, sort of waiting for the, for the actual findings to be handed down. It is, you know, hideously slow. And in spite of the very damning findings of the, uh, the coronial inquiry, of course, it's 2018 when they should have been made in 2014. I mean, I really don't think the government's got any intention to act you know, on the findings and the coronial, the coroner himself said, you know, if we wanted to guarantee that there would be no more, you know, Hamid Kazai cases, uh, then the refugees needed to be brought to somewhere where they could get, uh, you know, the highest standard of, um, you know, medical care, and that would be in Australia or in a country like Australia and New Zealand. Uh, he said, but he recognised, you know, the reality of the government policy and that, that was un- unlikely to happen. So he went on to make a number of other recommendations, including the accreditation of medical facilities uh, you know, on Manus and Nauru to uh, a standard established uh, by Australia. He put the lie to the idea that the medical facilities on Nauru and, Australia and, Nauru and Manus Island were anything like uh, even what was available in remote areas, and he referred to Cape York, that there was, uh, what was available on Manus Island was way below even what you might expect on uh, you know, remote Cape York. Uh, so it, it certainly put the lie to a lot of the, you know, the government's yeah. arguments, as I said, over the time, but they could have been made in 2014, not 2018. Well, that's exactly right. Well, that's four years, actually, not two years, four years. That's, that's right. We've been, been waiting four years since, since his death. It's been you know, four years we finally got the findings, yes. So Mr Ryan is the coroner, is that correct? That's right, yep. And he, he actually stated that the health care that Hamid received didn't meet Australian standards. Yes, very, very emphatically, uh, that they were well below um, the standards that were even available in remote areas of Australia. And this is compared to what Scott Morrison said at the time. He talked about the outstanding levels of health care that were available on Manus Island. Well, the coroner's finding was, you know, very, very explicit uh, that the, the medical care on Manus and on Nauru is way below you know, what is acceptable. Indeed, and in fact, the coroner goes on to say that I am satisfied that if Mr Kahazi's clinical deterioration was recognised and responded to in a timely way at the Manus Island Clinic and he was evacuated to Australia within 24 hours of developing severe septus, he would have survived. That's right. The, the, the delays, the delay, border force delays killed Hamid. That's, that's the, that's the bottom line. Uh, they didn't have the antibiotics on Manus Island. The doctors on Manus Island requested that he, that he be medevaced to Brisbane, to Australia. Uh, that was on the Friday. Um, they repeated that on the, you know, on the Saturday. Ultimately, he wasn't uh, brought to Australia until the Monday. And uh, by that stage, he was brain dead. That's that's despicable, and and does that happen? That obviously that happens often, doesn't it, Ian? He's not the only one. It happens. It, no, no, that's right. It happens. To, it happens too often, and um, you see very deliberate border force policy. We've had a very uh, close calls. Um, besides, I mean, leaving aside the fact that you've got you know twelve people, not of all who have died, you know, because of medical emergencies in one respect, often because of medical neglect and 
you know, mental health problems that are developed, you know, partly because of that medical neglect or they haven't got the treatment for those, you know, mental health uh, uh, problems that, uh, you know, are created by, you know, by the detention themselves. But we've seen some very, very close calls uh, where people have had to be um, urgently evacuated uh, from uh, Nauru to Australia in very, very similar, very, very similar circumstances. Uh, so it's, it happens... Um, regularly um, and it happens for the same reasons that the decisions are not being taken and the Border Force does not act on medical recommendations, it acts on its own politically driven you know, decisions and that was another point that the coroner made is that uh, the, there needs to be a very clear policy you know, written that's enforced for the offshore detention centres uh, which enshrines the fact that uh, the medical decisions, the decisions about emergency medical evacuations etc what kind of treatment is necessary uh, has to be made by doctors not by you know border force bureaucrats well that's exactly right i mean because they're not doctors how, how no, can they assess no, I mean it's outrageous. I mean it wouldn't be acceptable in any other <laughs> any other circumstances. You know, the idea that you would have government bureaucrats are saying, well, you can get treatment and, and you can't, or you can get treatment but not now, maybe tomorrow, not now, yeah, you know, maybe next week. <laughs> yeah, and that's uh, we've seen, um... you know, like a mother and baby, um, you know, desperately ill, uh, kept on Nauru against medical advice, and this is what this is two years ago. Um, both of them. You know, within hours of death, uh, had to be, you know, urgently medevac from Nauru, you know, to Australia. Why? Because you had border force officials refuse to act on, you know, medical medical information, medical advice, medical recommendation, medical pleadings in some some cases. Please uh, to, you know, border force uh, to act on the, the doctor's recommendation that people be evacuated. But um, it's against government policy, so they've. They've pushed it to uh, pushed it to the limit, and in Hamid's case, um, he was uh, it, it resulted in him dying. So basically, the the coroner, in summary, the coroner recommended the Home Affairs Department enforce a new policy that puts the clinical needs of detainees first if they need medical that's, transfers. That's correct. That's correct. Yep. And he also said that there should be mandatory inquests for asylum seekers who died in offshore centres to keep the government accountable. Uh, yes, yeah. yeah there, there were two very strong you know, kind of recommendations and they, they went alongside recommendations about the quality of health care which has to be guaranteed uh, to people who are being held on those islands and imprisoned uh, by the Australian government, uh, government on, you know, on those islands. So, he, so before he... Uh, alongside those recommendations about acting on a medical advice, um, you know, he said, that, well, the medical facilities, and if they're going to be offshore detention places, they have to be accredited uh, to a level uh, that is uh, you know, equivalent to what would be available in Australia. You know, it's really interesting. I'm just having a look at some of the notes, some of the other notes that's been published about the inquest on through the media, and it's quite interesting. It's, it looks here about how Australia's offshore Offshore, sorry, Australia's offshore detention regime was not within the scope of the inquest, but Mr Ryan said it would be possible to prevent further deaths by relocating asylum seekers to other places such as Australia. But then, Ian, he goes on to say that that was unlikely without a radical revision of policies to deal with asylum seekers who try to get to Australia by boat. Let's talk about that quickly. 
Yeah, well, that, that is, he made a very, very strong, you know, point in that regard. And although he, the, it is outside the, you know, the um, guidelines of, that he was, that he was given uh, to actually look at the offshore detention, uh, policy. But, you know, as you've, as you've gone over, he was very, very explicit, um, you know, that the only way of guarantee that there would not be another Hamid Kazai was that if they were, the asylum seekers and refugees were relocated, uh, to somewhere where they could get, uh, you know, guaranteed, uh, first rate, um, you know, medical care. And that meant, you know, Australia or, you know, New Zealand. And I think that's what, that's the lesson we have to take away. You know, I think the coroner's made a bunch of recommendations. I think the government, uh, will ignore them. Um, they, they know very well the scale of the med- medical neglect. It's a de- deliberate part of their policy, uh, to maintain these places as punitive, you know, regimes. But I think the policy for refugees, so the lesson for policy for, for refugee supporters needs to be, we have to fight to, you know, to bring them here. We, the only way we're going to guarantee that they do, people do get the medical care, they can get the protection they need is to ultimately, you know, close Manus and close Nauru and bring everyone who's on those islands to Australia where they you know, should have been allowed to stay in 2013. And indeed, um, today is a couple of days after Miss Dew died in police custody, in police custody. She was a young Aboriginal woman, woman, um, who died and we've just been paying tribute to her on this show. So it's interesting right. how the two are connected in some ways, isn't it? Even though he was offshore, he was still in, in the Australia's care. And they both, Miss Dew and Hamid, both died as a result of um, lack of duty of care. That's, yeah, that's right. And I think that's the point that the point of coroner was making, that there should be inquests for all those people, whether they die on Manus Island or on Nauru, they, they are dying in custody. Uh, it's custody created by Australia. They are in custody and they should be investigated and there should be uh, reports and an inquest uh, under the same you know, guidelines. It is a death in custody. There should be uh, inquests. And there's a, a very close connection. Uh, the point that we've made you know, elsewhere, when you look at... Uh, you know, the recent, you know, circumstances in uh, that there's been an inquest in the beginnings of an inquest in, you know, Sydney um, into, well, you know, a young Aboriginal man who, you know, died at police hands in or the uh, hands of, of uh, prison guards um, in, uh, you know, in Sydney. And, uh, you know, while people who are dying in cells in uh, Sydney or dying in camps um, in, you know, Nauru or Manus Island, the ultimate responsibility is the same. Yes, you're talking about David Dungai, aren't you? That's right, yeah. Yeah, we'll be interviewing him, continuing that discussion next Monday with Joseph Pugliese, who was at the inquest. Mm, Great. It's approximately 4.46. Ian, thank you so much for coming onto the show, Um, and hopefully we'll be be having you back very soon. Okay, thanks very much. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Ian from the Refugee uh, Coalition in New South Wales. Um, talking about the the atrocious um, circumstances of the death of an Iranian man. Hang on, Arash, hang on a sec. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, we just had a bit of a technical difficulty there. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that was, um, as I was saying, um, an Iranian man who, who died um, on Manus Island and really should have been brought to Australia. Just as a postscript, um, Amnesty International's Kate... Squits was joined by about a dozen protesters outside the Brisbane Coroner's Court to ask the government to implement Mr Ryan's 
recommendations. The question here today, is the Australian Government now going to act on this decision and improve health care for refugees and asylum seekers in its custody, whether that's onshore or offshore, she said. And the Home Affairs Department said the findings were under review and expressed condolences to Mr Kazasi's family. However, Barry Fatford, Barry, sorry, Barry Fatford from Doctors for Refugees said further deaths were inevitable without urgent intervention. This can and will happen again unless Australia acts urgently to reform the way it delivers health care on Nauru and Manus Island, she said. Human Rights Watch Australia Director Elaine Pearson said the inquest should be a wake-up call to the government. The solution is to get people off these islands once and for all. It's approximately 4.47 and we wanted to actually provide listeners with extensive coverage about this inquest um, and the findings, as Ian said, were handed down um, a week ago. So that's a, a current affair that I'm hoping listeners were able to, um, to, to, to listen to this coverage. Uh, we'll just go to the song, um, My Spirit is Free by Dick. Yeah, uh, it's approximately 4.53, so we've got a couple of minutes left. And, yeah, Brett Collins, I don't know what happened with him from Justice Action, but he'll be coming back next week and we'll be interviewing him. And just to give listeners a bit of a rundown of what we're going to be interviewing him on next Monday, we're going to be looking at the outstanding issues that is causing concern with inmates to the point that they are having psychological issues, emotional outbursts, and are just generally depressed. And, in fact, they actually the, the government actually wants to do some rapid build dormitories, which means that um, prisoners will actually be subjected to even more overcrowding and not have any space, and they'll all be all together um, in dormitories with no doors. And the Assistant Commissioner, Luke Grant, made, according to um, Justice Action Reports, which are very, very accurate, made a couple of documentaries describing what he termed as benefits of the rapid-built prisons here at the Hunter and Macquarie. And inmates were sceptical of these documentaries and most inmates were strongly opposed to the dormitory style of accommodation. And for good reason. Prior to this centre opening, correctional officers requested for volunteers to go to the Hunter Correctional Centre. And when they didn't get the response they hoped for, CSNSW transferred inmates against their will to the Hunter Correctional Centre. And, you know, things have been pretty, pretty difficult there. Um, in, in some rapid build dormitories, including in New Zealand, um, prisoners have been discriminated against and not being allowed to do educational, educational programs because their literacy score is lower than usual. And really that doesn't happen. And really it's a bit silly, isn't it? Um, putting a score on, on literacy when, when, um, they should be doing something a little bit more um, productive in order for, for people to get in. Everybody learns differently. And in some cases, inmates have been moved from a prison facility that was close to family members and transferred five hours north, leaving the families emotionally distraught as they can no longer receive regular visits from their families. And also with the phone, there was a promises that, um, that there was going to be more phone calls and that, that didn't happen either. It's approximately 4.55. So that's just, just just to give you a little bit of preliminary material um, and a bit of a lead-up to the interview next Monday. Next Monday we'll also be interviewing Joseph Bugliese and we'll be doing a continuation of the discussion with Miss Dew um, and you'll have that to look forward to. 
And, of course, we'll interview Brett Collins from Justice Action. Thank you very much to Ian for participating on our show. We've got about one minute left, so um, it's goodbye from Marissa. See you, everyone. And thank you very much. See you every Monday from 4 to 5 for the Doing Time show. Just very quickly before I go, and I'll introduce this next week, but Joseph was actually um, part of our memorial show for for Ray Jackson um, in April. Okay, that's cool. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye.